Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Did you know that when you go to Mass, when you enter into the Eucharistic liturgy, you are stepping into another world? We're not just showing up at church and saying some prayers, singing some songs together, and having some good fellowship, all that's fine, but we are entering into sacred rites, ancient rites, rites that go all the way back to the early church, to the way the first Christians worship God. These rites go back to Jesus himself. They even have roots all the way back in the Old Testament. Think about all the way back to Moses at Mount Sinai. Remember that story of Moses getting the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai and leading the people in worshiping God and making the covenant with God? Did you know that the basic pattern, the core structure of our Mass goes all the way back to Mount Sinai? So when I show up for Mass and I say these prayers, I go through these rituals, I'm entering into something that's so much bigger than myself. I'm entering into something that goes all the way back to ancient times, into God's plan for how we worship Him. And I find that comforting. I find that very encouraging because when, when I go to Mass, I'm not going to something that's just made up by some priest at my parish or so, the, something that's based on the creative exercise of a liturgical director or a, a choir director. No, no. I'm entering into something that God has been planning from the beginning of time. God made us. He knows how we work. And He made us for worship. We find our fulfillment in giving ourselves totally to God, and God knows the best way to do that, and he established certain patterns of worship that many people don't even realize anymore. But if you just looked at the Mass, you would find that basic pattern, that ancient rite of worship. And I want to talk about the what, what I know you're so familiar with, but sometimes the things we're, we're, we're so familiar with, we become too familiar. We take it for granted. We don't see. I want, to, I, want to, I want to take the scales off our eyes and see what's really happening at the Mass and what we are really participating in so that we can give the best of ourselves in every liturgy at every Mass and receive all that God wants to give us. Do you ever want to get more out of Mass? Well, the way we get more out of Mass is to give more. And the way we give more is to understand the pattern of worship that God gave us in the Mass of all ages. That's what we're going to take a look at in this week's podcast. So welcome to All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sree, and I want to give a warm welcome to any new listeners that are joining us for the first time, especially those down in Colorado Springs. It was so fun. I was down there with my wife, Beth, recently for the diocese. We were doing a a marriage evening. Uh, It was so fun to be able to talk about our book on the good, the messy, and the beautiful, the joys and struggles of really real married life. Met so many good, faithful Catholics wanting to live marriage, knowing how hard it is especially in our culture today. We talked about the messiness of married life that we all face. The best of Christian marriages have struggles and messiness in it, and that's actually where God wants to meet us. So, so fun to be with my wife, to be able to present together uh, on that. I was also in Philadelphia recently. And wow, this this was amazing. I was at the Philadelphia Eucharistic Congress at the Our Lady of Chestahova Shrine, and that was just amazing. Over 2,000 people gathered together to celebrate our faith in the Eucharist, to learn more about the wisdom of the Church and its teachings on the Eucharist so that we can grow in our greater devotion and love for Jesus in the Eucharist. Uh, there was a very special guest there, uh, the Mother of Blessed Carlo Acutis, you may know 
Blessed Carlo from from Italy. He was a young teenage boy, died early of cancer, but he did so much in his youth on the internet, promoting Eucharistic devotion, raising awareness about the Eucharist. I love Blessed Carlo, and now on my Rome pilgrimage, I've been adding him to the itinerary list. We always go and pray at his tomb. He has a wonderful line, by the way about the Eucharist. Uh, He says, uh, I'll paraphrase it, but he says, just as uh, sitting in the sun, you get a suntan. So sitting before the presence of the Son, Jesus, in the Eucharist, we become saints. And so if we want to become saints, we want to grow in our Eucharistic devotion. And and that's just amazing. Now, and speaking of Eucharistic devotion, this Eucharistic Congress, many dioceses, not just Philadelphia, but all around the country are going to be offering these. I'm speaking at a number of them this year. Why? Because you've probably heard here in the United States, we're having a national Eucharistic revival. Oh, it's been a big effort by the U.S. bishops. I've been blessed to serve on a committee with them on this for a little bit. And uh, I was so thrilled when I first learned Bishop Cousins and the Bishop's Conference wanting to do this a number of years ago. They've been planning for several years, and every diocese now is focusing on this. And this summer, you want to check it out, July 17th to 21 in Indianapolis. Just picture tens of thousands of fervent Catholics gathering together around our Lord Jesus in the Eucharist at the National Eucharistic Revival Congress. It's just, this is a gift. We haven't done one of these. I think it was, I forget the date, maybe 1938. Uh, And many countries around the world do these Eucharistic Congresses every few years to revitalize our, our, our faith in the Eucharist. We haven't done this in almost 100 years. And so let's gather together. I want to really encourage you, go and check this out, uh, the National Eucharistic Revival. It's going to be in Indianapolis, July 17th to the 21st. And there are going to be many awesome speakers you're going to get to hear from people like Sister Marion, Bishop Barron, uh, Father Josh Johnson, and and many other keynotes. I'm going to be giving a presentation there. So go check it out. Go to eucharisticcongress.org. That's eucharisticcongress.org. And I hope to see you and many of your family members and friends and fellow parishioners at the Eucharistic Congress this summer in Indianapolis. Now, in preparation for the Eucharistic Congress, I, I'm going to be doing a, a couple episodes here and there throughout the, the the coming months to just keep reminding us of the importance of the Eucharist. That's what our, our bishops here in the United States are asking us to focus on, so I'm going to give a lot of attention to that in, in my podcast this year, and I'm going to look at different angles of it. But, I'm, but before we get into the topic we're looking at today about the historical roots, which I think a lot of Catholics just aren't aware of, I want to share with you what I'm, what, what I'm going to be talking about today is based on a brand new book that I have. It's a short little booklet, actually, called Behold the Lamb of God, 60 Questions and Answers on the Mystery of the Eucharist. So, you know, sadly, so many Catholics don't understand the Eucharist. Many of them think it's just a symbol, just a reminder of Jesus in the Eucharist. Many youth especially don't see that this is the most profound encounter we can have with God is in the Eucharist. Many young people wonder, why do I need to go to Mass? I believe in God. I'm a good person. I'm spiritual. Why do I need to go to Mass? What, what's Mass is boring. How do we revitalize our own personal faith and conviction and devotion about the Eucharist? And how do we enkindle that, especially in the next generation? This is a simple 
book that's out there. There's been a lot of books on the Eucharist in preparation for the Eucharistic Congress. So please check all of them out. There's amazing works and resources like never before about the Eucharist. I think what makes this one distinct, we wanted to do something that was very easy, it easily broken down, taking the different aspects of the Eucharist in 60 questions. So it's short Q&A format, something you can easily give to a, a teenager. You can easily give it to that brother, that friend, that coworker that maybe has been away from the church for a while or someone that doesn't have any familiarity with Catholicism, this would be easy to help someone make sure they have the basics of what the Church really teaches about the Eucharist. Now, one of those things that we're going to look at here in this session today is on the Mass. We're going to be taking a look at the, the ancient roots of the Mass. And I want to consider how the Mass doesn't just go back to the Apostles. I mean, that alone is pretty amazing to think that what, when I go in and I say, make the sign of the cross, and I go back and I'm at Mass and I sing these these prayers, holy, 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 uh, glory to God in the highest, to know that, that many of these prayers go all the way back to the early church. Some of them go back to the apostles. Some of them go back right to Jesus himself. Uh, some of the words we recite at Mass are related right there to the Gospels, the life of Jesus. And, and some of the words go all the way back to the Old Testament, to the Psalms, to the prophets, what I want to consider is how the structure of the Mass itself goes back to the way God established worship at Mount Sinai, even. I don't know if you ever thought about that, have you? Have you ever considered how the way you worship when you go to Mass, God was preparing for that way back in Exodus 24? Exodus 24, this is, you know, thousands of years ago, before the time of Christ is, you know, this is in the time of Moses. God was thinking of you. There at Mount Sinai, when he gave the Ten Commandments, God was thinking of you and your family and your friends when you would come to Mass. Wherever you are, whether you're in Lincoln, Nebraska, or Sydney, Australia, or London in the UK, wherever you are, God, God, and you're, whether it's a tiny little parish, you're in some beautiful cathedral, wherever you're at, he was thinking about how to prepare a way for you to worship him in the best way, in the way that would fulfill you the most, the way that would fill you with his love the most, and the way that would give him the worship and reverence that's due to him as God. He was thinking of you at Mount Sinai, and not just when he gave the Ten Commandments, but in the way of worship there. Now, I don't know if you know about the pattern of worship. I want to bring you in on the scene. I want you just to imagine being one of those Israelites there with Moses at Mount Sinai. We're in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. They just got the Ten Commandments, and then Moses is going to lead the people in worship. So what does he do? He gathers them all together, and there's going to be a reading from the words of the covenant. So this would be a reading of the Ten Commandments. Think of this as like a liturgy of the word. He solemnly reads the words of the covenant, and then you know what happens? All the people in one voice, all in one voice together respond, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So they hear the word of the Lord, they hear those Ten Commandments, and they covenant themselves to these Ten Commandments. They say, yes, I, I believe these. Yes, I commit myself to live this way. I will follow these Ten Commandments. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So notice there's a proclamation of God's word, and then the people respond, not just like, oh, yeah, yeah they also in their own, in their own individual voices, 
thousands of people all just muttering, oh, yeah, I'll do it. Yep, I agree. Oh, I believe. No, no, all in one voice. They say the same words. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Does that sound familiar? This sounds like liturgical dialogue. This is what liturgical theologians describe as liturgical dialogue. And you see this pattern in scripture. You see it right here, one of the first times in the Bible. It's right here at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. It's where we respond together as one community because the worship that we're giving isn't my own private worship. It's my personal worship participating in the worship of the people of God. And we are made for this. This is what heaven is going to be, my friends. And heaven is not going to be just like me hanging out with Jesus all by myself in my little corner. No, 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 no. It's going to be me, God willing, I make it there. And all of you, and God willing, you make it all there. And St. Therese of the Sioux, and St. John the Apostle, and JP2, and St. Ignatius of Loyola. It's going to be like all the saints together. We're worshiping God. Yes, it's very personal, but we're doing it together as one community. And you can see this in the book of Revelation. When all the people respond together, amen, they respond together in one unified voice. This is this pattern of worship that you see in the mass, that you see in the book of Revelation, in the heavenly liturgy uh, of the angels and the saints. That's how they're worshiping in heaven. God is revealing that already way back at Mount Sinai. So if some people ever say to you, oh, why is the mass so ritualistic? You know, you just have to say these words and everyone's just saying the same words. It's not, I like spontaneous prayer. Why can't I just make up my own words? Just say to the person, it's, well, this is, spontaneous prayer is fine, but this is the biblical way of worshiping God. This is how God has revealed or called to worship. And it corresponds to the deepest longings on our heart. You see, again, spontaneous prayer is amazing. Please Pray as you're driving in your car, in your home, in your chapel. Speak from your heart, heart to heart to Jesus as a person, as a friend. It's a wonderful thing. But we long for more than that. We long to worship God together. We're made for the communion of saints. And and, and there's something about entering into these sacred words that go all the way back to the early church, to Jesus, even to the Old Testament scriptures, to Mount Sinai, entering into these sacred words together as a community and worshiping God, not in just my own private, personal way with my personality, my own style, my own interest. No, no, no. I'm I'm actually entering into something bigger than me. And that's what they did at Mount Sinai. They didn't all just like give their own spontaneous prayers that day. No, they all responded in one voice, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And that's a part of worship. That's how we're made. We're made to worship together this way. So spontaneous prayer is good. Keep doing it on your own in your private time. But when we come together, we're not offering our private time. This is the people of God. Uh, the people of God at Mount Sinai, same thing in the New Testament, the people of God, the church. We're entering into the prayer of the whole church, not just me. So beautiful, beautiful stuff here. Now, let's go to the next part of the, of the liturgy at Mount Sinai. So after the liturgy of the word, guess what they have? What would you guess they have? Well, they have a liturgy of sacrifice. So Moses will sacrifice the animals. And it's and, and I won't get into all the background here. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. Why did the Israelites sacrifice animals? There's many reasons for it. But the one thing I'll share with you here is that this isn't just some random thing. You know, God gets a kick out of seeing animals being cut up. <laughs> you know, no, no, no. It, it, he's particularly sacrificing animals that were associated with Egyptian idolatry. Gods that the Israel ancient Israel ancient Egyptians worshipped, gods that had images of these animals, or this these animals were associated with these deities, and so the Israelites had fallen into that idolatry while they were in Egypt. The Bible reveals that to us uh, that they had fallen into idolatry there, 
And so part of what they're doing in offering the animals in sacrifice is to repudiate their worship of them, to reject idolatry. So if in the liturgy of the word, they hear the Ten Commandments, the first one is all about, you know, you shall not have any other strange gods before me, so no idolatry. So they say in their words, we commit ourselves to you and you alone, God, we reject idolatry. So they say that in their words in the first part of the liturgy, this liturgy of the word, but now they're going to show their loyalty to God in their actions by sacrificing these animals. They're saying, okay, we reject these as, as deities. We are rejecting Egyptian idolatry. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. So it's a symbolic way of repudiating their former waves of idolatry. But what I want to zoom in on, though, what I think is most fascinating here is it doesn't just end with the sacrifice. There's a blood ritual. Now, just, just imagine, it's kind of crazy what happened that day, but imagine you show up, you're there at Mount Sinai, and Moses takes the blood from all these animals and he has them in this big basin. He takes the blood and he holds it up and he says, behold the blood of the covenant. And then he takes the blood and he throws half of the blood on all the people. And then half the blood goes onto the altar. So don't wear your Sunday best if you show up for worship with Moses because <laughs> your, your nice white dress is going to be completely inundated with blood. <laughs> well, what is this all about? Well, what I want you to understand is a couple of things. First, for the ancient world, the, the idea is that the life is in the blood. Blood wasn't just something in the body. It, it symbolized something. It symbolized life. And in fact, you read in the Old Testament, the life is in the blood. And the idea is that you're, you're, you're having this blood go on the, uh, sprinkled on the people, and that blood, same blood is being sprinkled onto the altar. And so what's being made manifest here is this idea that God is meeting the people at the altar in worship, and the people are getting the blood on, on their clothes. So it's symbolizing like this, this shared life, the shared blood. The same blood poured out on the people is being poured out on the altar where God's presence meets the people. And so it's like shared blood between us and God, shared life. Now, now in the ancient biblical world, like when you share blood, it's like becoming blood brothers. You know, little kids might do that. They'll take blood from their fingers and then touch each other. And then they become blood brothers. Well, that that is a very sacred rite in the ancient world, not just in Israel, but ancient world around Israel. And it was a sign of covenant. Like when you would do this, you would become family members. And so what this is symbolizing is that God, God is, is adopting us as his children. He's entering into a covenant with us. We become his brothers. In fact, it's from this point forward, Israel's going to be called, Israel's God's son, but Israel's also going to be called God's bride. God is the bridegroom and Israel's the bride and their covenant was made here at Mount Sinai. And so the blood ritual symbolizing shared blood symbolizes a shared union with God. And then they have a communion meal. The leaders go up the mountain and, and the, the cloud of God's glory symbolizing his presence comes down from the mountain and descends upon them and they, and they share this life together. And they share a meal together, which once again symbolizes covenant, union, fellowship. Now, my friends, does this sound familiar? In our Mass, when we go to Mass, we have a liturgy of the Word. We all respond, thanks be to God, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We, we give the responsorial psalm all in one unison, one unified voice, just like they did at Mount Sinai. And then after the liturgy of the word, what do we have? We have the liturgy of sacrifice, the Eucharistic sacrifice, Christ's body and blood offered up in, in sacrifice to the Father on Mount Calvary, and that's made present to us at every Mass. And what do we do? We then partake of his body and blood in the Eucharist. There's the blood ritual and the communion meal when we receive Holy Communion. And that symbolizes but our shared life. But unlike the Old Testament, 
It does more than symbolize. It doesn't just symbolize shared life. It actually affects it. The, the real body, blood, soul of divinity is made present to us and is dwelling within us. We really have the real union with Jesus Christ every time we receive Holy Communion worthily. And at the Last Supper, when Jesus gave us this gift of the Eucharist, do you remember what he said? It's the only time he ever used the word covenant there at the Last Supper. It's the only time. He never used it in his public ministry. The only time was at the Last Supper. And you remember what he says? Behold, the blood of the new covenant, echoing Moses' words. This is what Moses said at Mount Sinai. Behold, the blood of the covenant. Just as Moses said those words, Jesus says, behold, the blood of the new covenant. He's showing us the connection that the pattern for worship established in seed form at Sinai is now fulfilled in what he gives us in the Eucharist. And this is what the apostles go on to celebrate. And this is what you see in the early church. I write about this, by the way, in, in the book, Behold the Lamb of God, the, the 60 Questions and Answers of the Eucharist. I write about the, the, the examples of the early church and how they worship God. I'll give you just one example. Justin Martyr in the year 155 AD, he wrote about what the Christians did when they gathered for worship. They gathered on Sunday, to hear the writings of the prophets and the apostles, the Old and the New Testament scriptures. Then the presider, the priest, gave an exhortation, like a homily. Uh, so we have a liturgy of the word on Sunday and an exhortation from the priest, followed by prayers of petition. Doesn't that sound familiar? That sounds like our intercessory prayers that we have at every Mass, where the, the person gets up and gives the petition, and then we and he says, let us pray to the Lord. And we all respond, Lord, hear our prayer, all in one voice, once again, just like at Mount Sinai. And and then that's followed by Justin Martyr describes how after the prayers of petition, this is again, this is 155 AD that they're praying this way at mass. The people come and they present the bread and the cup of water and a cup of wine. They're presented to the presider. This is like the presentation of the gifts. And then the, the priest will offer these gifts to God and give thanks. Uh, and the word for giving thanks is Eucharistain. Uh, so Eucharist, these are prayers of thanksgiving. At the end of the prayer of thanksgiving, the, all the people respond in one voice again, saying amen, like our great amen that we say at the end of our Eucharistic prayers. And then after this, the deacons give the people the Eucharisted bread. <laughs> That's what it's described as, the Eucharisted bread and wine. So we receive the body and blood of Jesus. This is what they did in 155 AD. Uh, I think about Hippolytus. This is another early church leader in the year 215 AD. He gives us similar kind of outline, but he also gives us some of the actual prayers. He says, the bishop would pray, the Lord be with you. And all the people reply, and with your spirit. And then the bishop says, lift up your hearts. And the people respond, we have lifted them to the Lord. And then the bishop says, let us give thanks to the Lord. And the people respond, it is proper and just. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Did you know that some of these prayers we say go back to the early church? I mean, we're talking, this is just a couple generations after the apostles that we see the, the pattern of worship in, in fuller form. We see the similar prayers. I, I just am so grateful in an age where the, things are just so chaotic in the world, we have the Mass as an anchor grounding us in reality, helping us to enter into these ancient rites that conform to the way God has revealed we should worship Him. So in closing, three things, three things to put into practice here. First of all, if you want to enter into these ancient rites more fully, you need time to prepare. That's the first thing, prepare. 
So as you go to mass, you got to quiet yourself down, turn off the radio, turn off your podcast. Maybe if you're with little children, maybe you can pray a decade of the rosary, or I often will have one of my kids read the gospel reading on the way in. Do something to kind of quiet yourself down, to realize you're showing up for something so much bigger than yourself, and you have to be prepared to encounter God there. So take time for preparing. Secondly, reverence. Remember, again, we're entering into something much bigger than ourselves. Let's show reverence, not just to the rites, but to Jesus who's present there. When we walk into the church, genuflect, make the sign of the cross, make a good genuflection. Don't just rush the sign of the cross. Don't just rush your genuflection. Make a good reverence. You're going before the holy presence of God. That will help prepare your heart and mind to enter these sacred mysteries. And then finally, and probably most importantly here, learn to love Jesus in these sacred rites. Many times we might be disappointed in the music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the choir was off today, or oh, I didn't like that song. That song is so 1970s, or or oh, the homily wasn't clear. I didn't quite get as much out of that. Or maybe the church architecture isn't as beautiful as I might like, or the fellowship isn't there, you know, the community at the parish outside of Mass. And those things are are, are important. Don't get me wrong. I want beautiful music, beautiful homilies, beautiful architecture, wonderful fellowship. All those things are good, but even in the midst of all that, we have to learn to love Jesus in the sacred rites. We're coming not for those other things. We're coming for Jesus, and we're coming to worship him in the way he has revealed to us throughout salvation history from Sinai through the church. He's revealed how to worship, and if the church isn't beautiful, the homily isn't engaging, the music is done poorly— Jesus is still there. Let's not allow ourselves. This is a temptation for me. I could get grumpy or get a little discouraged when I when I don't like the the beauty of the liturgy isn't there. I think you know, and I have to remind myself, Jesus is there. He is really present here, and I'm not coming for what I get out of it. And as much as I might prefer to have the music be better, if I if I'm frustrated, I allow myself to get frustrated with all oh, the music or the homily or the architecture or whatever. I'm not able to encounter God. The devil will use that to keep me from giving the best of myself to Jesus in every liturgy. So let's enter into these sacred rites and not be distracted about the externals. We still think about them. They're important. Those things can enhance our worship. So not, please know, I'm not saying we shouldn't care about those things, but when we are in a situation where we find ourselves, you know, not in the most beautiful of settings and in, in whatever category of, of, of beauty you're, you're thinking of there at the liturgy, Don't let that distract you from the reality of these sacred rites and Jesus being really there. Well, my friends, if you want to learn more about these ancient rites, you want to learn more how to unpack it in a simple way for your family, for your friends, in a very basic way, check out my 60 questions and answers on the mystery of the Eucharist book. It's called Behold the Lamb of God. You can get it at ascensionpress.com. That's ascensionpress.com. Behold the Lamb of God, 60 Questions and Answers on the Mystery of the Eucharist. You can get it in bulk quantities, actually. So if you buy like more than five and you buy more than 10 or more than 20, like for your parish or for your family, you get, you can get this really, really cheap. I think they have discounts all the way down to like $5 for some of them. So check that out again at ascensionpress.com. It's called Behold the Lamb of God. Also, don't forget... Mark it in your calendar, July 17th to 21st, 2024, the National Eucharistic Revival, the Congress in Indianapolis. Check it out online as well. Hope to see you there. God bless.